Well, last week we began a sermon series with kind of a novel name when I announced that we got a few chuckles in the crowd. So yeah, I noticed it's, it is a little, little bit unique, but our sermon series is titled Tweets from Scripture. And so each Sunday during the summer, we're going to be looking at short, 140 character or less statements from Scripture. Um, and we'll be looking at them and then understanding them and applying them to our lives and to our hearts. So today's um, tweet from Scripture comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verses Two and uh, three. Verse three in our short little passage is actually the first of the Ten Commandments. In the remaining verses, verses four through seventeen, um, God announces the rest of His commands. Now, don't need to read them all because you guys know them all, right? You got them committed to memory by heart. Okay. A recent, a recent, uh, a recent study found that sixty percent of Anglican priests in the UK uh, didn't know all ten of the commandments. So anyway. Um, if you want to quiz me later, you can. But uh, okay, so when the Ten Commandments, when you think of the Ten Commandments, um, what goes through your head? Like, like, what would be like the image of God? Like, if you could look at God's face as He gives the Ten Commandments, um, what kind of expression do you see? Do you see the stern look of a? angry traffic cop? Do you, do you see the aloof look of a circuit court judge? Do you see the look of anger from like an embittered boss? Or, or do you see on God's face an expression of joy? You see how we understand the commands of God is integral to knowing and enjoying him. See, there are many people who reject Christianity because they get the commands wrong. And it's also true that there are countless millions of Christians whose lives are frustrating and unsatisfying because they too get the commands of God wrong. Thankfully, we have this passage before us. It opens our eyes to God's redeeming grace. And it's through these grace-opened eyes that we can properly gaze upon and delight in the commands of God. So let's look at our short little statement from Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Therefore, we must know God's word. We must know his word in order to know his ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word before us. We thank you that you speak to us, even in short statements like like the one we've just read. Help us to um, see through the clutter. Help us to see through um, our own embittered hearts. Help us to see uh, beyond the idols that, that we cling to, that we may behold you, Heavenly Father, and that we may um, know you and walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It doesn't seem like it used to be that like parents gave their children's name that seemed to have some sort of meaning to it, like you know, like like at least maybe like a family name or or uh, or a name like Christopher, which which has meaning. It means bearer of Christ. Nowadays, it seems like, you know, 
parents are giving their kids all sorts of names. They have no idea kind of why, why they call them what they do. I've got a, a friend of mine who's an obstetrician. And a few years ago, I was at her, at her home, and we were sharing a meal. And she was just telling me just how some of these names are quite weird. And one that stuck with me, I couldn't believe it. She said, um, she said there was one, one mom who um, announced a, the name of, of her newborn child. And um, the child's name is Nazmo King. Nasmo King. I asked, well, how did you come up with that name? She goes, well, she didn't really know what to name the child, and all around her was these signs that said no smoking. And so <laughs> if you just rearrange the words a little, you change the uh, emphasis on the syllables, you get Nasmo King. I asked her to follow up on how Nasmo King's doing. He's 18 years old now, and he has a two-pack-a-day habit. All right, I'm joking. That, that really didn't happen. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> you know, in the Bible, pretty much every name has some sort of meaning. Like take, for instance, the name Jacob. It means one who grasps at a heel. And if you know, he was the second born twin. And as he was born, he was grabbing at his brother's heel when he came out. So Jacob is a fitting name. The Bible is full of great names with great meaning. But there can perhaps be no greater name than what we see in our passage. Do you know God has a name? And it has great meaning? And that his name is Yahweh. It's in our text. But it's hard for us to see. See, our English Bibles do us a disservice. I'm not saying don't read your Bibles. You didn't hear that from me. Our Bibles are very reliable and trustworthy. Um, but when we read the words the Lord in, in the Old Testament, and when the Lord is L-O-R-D, all caps, all right? I know when we type like text, that's like means you're angry, right? But there's, a, there's something different here, all right? So um, in the actual Hebrew manuscripts, it's, it's uh, the four Hebrew consonants. It's Yod, He, uh, Wav, and He. Um, they, the old, in the old uh, Hebrew Bible, they didn't have any vowels. It was just consonants. So in our English, it would be like, like Y-H-W-H. And when you throw the vowels in, you get the name Yahweh. That is what's really there in the ancient Hebrew text. It's a name, Yahweh. Now, why do we have the words the Lord then in our Bibles? Well, it started all the way back with the Jewish people in the 4th century B.C., they came to believe that it was uh, wrong to actually say God's name out loud. And so when in reading their Bibles, when they saw the, the yod heth wav heth the Yahweh's name, they would instead say Adonai. Adonai is a Hebrew name. It means master. It's a, it's a title. It means master or Lord. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, following with me, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, uh, the word for Yahweh, um, they put in the words uh, kurios, which is the Greek word for master or lord. And so today, our English Bibles follow this tradition of inserting the title, the Lord, in all caps, for whenever in the Hebrew Bible it says the name Yahweh. Now, the problem for us is that instead of actually reading God's name, we read a title instead. And it obscures some important truths from us. Why is this important for us today? Two things. One, God is personal. He can be known. We aren't just to call upon some nebulous, distant deity. No, 
to, to the ones to whom God has revealed himself, we are to call upon him by name, Yahweh. You're free to do that, all right? So you're free to pray to Yahweh, say Yahweh. When you read your Bibles, your Old Testament, say Yahweh instead of the Lord. The second thing is, Yahweh's name has meaning. Remember when Moses said to God, all right, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to go get all these Hebrew people in Egypt, but who am I supposed to say sent me? They're going to want to know your name. And God says, well, tell them I am sent you. It's, uh, and then so the, actually the word Yahweh has this root meaning in it. it, it God is the God who is. But even more important than like his being, it reflects his relational nature. The, the name Yahweh is given to his covenant people. And so in a sense, it means, Yahweh's name means, I am the God who is there for you. I am the faithful God who is there for my people. And so, that kind of changes how we read our text. This short passage, Yahweh is getting upon, uh, getting across a real important truth, that he redeems us by his grace. He says, I am Yahweh who has delivered you out of bondage. And then he says, this has an important implication for you. It's after saying that that he says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the first of the Ten Commandments, and it's true. All the other nine flow right out of it, right? The big idea, the big point this morning is this. We are to have no other gods than Yahweh because only he can redeem us by his grace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And in doing so, we're going to see God's redeeming grace has an effect on us in three areas. God's redeeming grace brings us release, it brings us rest, and it brings us renewal. First point. We were to have no other gods than Yahweh because only he can release us from bondage to false gods. Let me ask you, how would most secular people around you respond to what I just said? Don't you think they would say something like, you Christians are weird, (laughs) you know? You're the ones with the false gods. I'm no part of some religious machine. I have no gods that I worship. I'm free from such worry. I have no gods that I serve. But don't be so fast. We all worship something. Everybody bows down to some god or idol. Even the atheist bows down to a god. Some people bow down to the god of personal beauty. Some people bow down to the god of the perfect family. Some people bow down to the god of relational intimacy. Some people bow down to the God of of money or power or sex. Earlier, Mark Alardo shared in his testimony of coming to faith in Christ at the age of 55. Before Mark bowed his knee uh, to the Lord last fall, he bowed his knee to the God of pleasure. He shared that with you. He lived a hedonistic lifestyle chasing after one cool event after another. But the problem was, Mark's God didn't serve Mark. Mark served his God. Mark was not free to live in such a way where the, gods, the demands of his God didn't weigh upon him. As a result, Mark needed release. And God, in his redeeming grace, released Mark from his God of pleasure. 
Now, isn't it true? It's like really easy to see this in other people, right? We're able to point to someone and say, boy, they got an idol. Let me tell you, right? Um, Perhaps, don't poke at anybody next to you either, all right? Um, Perhaps we should listen to um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Here's what he wrote. A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in the secret, in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Greg Beale wrote this really thick book uh, titled, the title tells you what it's all about. We become what we worship, a biblical theology of idolatry. His main point is this. You don't have to go read the book. His main point is this. People resemble what they revere, either for ruin or for restoration. People resemble what they revere, either for ruin or for restoration. And he makes the point in in his book that, that God has made people to reflect. He has made us to be imaging beings. And that people will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or something else in creation. The point is this then, you either bow your knee in love and devotion to Yahweh because he has released you by his redeeming grace, or you have some other God in your life. If you're not sure what false gods vie for your obedience, ask yourself questions like, what is it that I live for? What is it that if it were taken away would cause me to to experience ruin? In my life, what is it that causes anger or worry to rise up inside of me? These are good questions to ask. They'll help you discern whatever God or idol you have. I know it's hard to admit, but we all worship some sort of God, either Yahweh or some God substitute. And the result is we become enslaved to it. We foolishly think that our gods serve us when, in fact, we serve our gods. They hold us in captivity. In the end, we become that which we worship. Say you worship at the altar of uh, financial security. Guess what? Your life will look like the stock chart that you worship. Your happiness will go up and down as the market rises and falls. And the longer you bow to the God of financial security, oddly enough, the more insecure you become. You are, after all, just one black swan event away from total chaos and loss. So what's the remedy for our chasing after false gods? The remedy is nothing other than the one true God who chases after you. The Israelites were helpless in their captivity, but Yahweh in his love and his mercy went to them. God in his redeeming grace brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One of my seminary professors, Michael Williams, uh, wrote this. He said, for 430 years, the Israelites had seen Pharaoh's gods As the Egyptians' slaves, the Israelites had built the monuments, the tombs, the shrines. They had seen the statues and the paintings on the wall. And they knew, like Pharaoh, that the gods do not act 
They do not speak. The gods are impotent, mute, and probably deaf. In the Exodus, however, they see and hear something different. Yahweh is different. Yahweh acts. And he goes on to say this amazing thing. He says, what sets Yahweh off from the idols is the fact that he is the sovereign one. And then listen, the one who comes to us, not the one who comes from us. See, all the other gods are really just man-made. They come from us. We invent them. We make them. We hold them in our hands. And then they have power over us. They get us to bow down and to serve them. But Yahweh is different. He doesn't come from us. He comes for us. To rescue us from our oppressor. To redeem us out of our bondage to sin. He speaks from his holy mountain and he says, I am Yahweh, your God. He says, I stretched out my holy hand and in mercy and grace brought you back here. And to where was it that God brought his people? To a mountain? Yes. But no. Where did God bring his people? To himself. On eagle's wings, I carried you. Where? To me. My friends, no God that you could ever serve other than God can do that for you. No God brings you close other than Yahweh. God redeems us in his grace. He releases us from our false gods. Now let's look at how the rest comes from God's redeeming grace. We were to have no other gods than Yahweh because only he can give us rest. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of famous wealthy industrialist Andrew Carnegie. Uh, maybe you've heard these words from his journal. They're from his journal, so they're not the best grammar. But let me, let me read what he wrote when he was just a young, successful man. He said, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. <laughs> No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, I should be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent Recovery. I will resign business at 35. Andrew Carnegie vowed when he was a young, successful businessman that he would retire at the age of 35 and devote himself to noble causes. It never happened. Why? Because man-made idols... Never let you rest. Some of you are here well into your careers. You've come farther than you ever imagined when you were a little child. You've exceeded your wildest dreams. And yet, it's not enough. 
And so you take that call from the headhunter or you slave the extra hours just to land that one more account. Know this, no false God can ever give you rest. Some of you here are young, you're in high school or college or you're right out of college, you're in that first job or maybe your second one. Uh, You're full of excitement about what lies ahead. You've got goals and dreams to be fulfilled. You're, you're well on your way to finding meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. Or are you? Know this. Chasing after false gods can be exhilarating. But in the end, there will be no rest. Now, some people would argue that Christianity is no better. It's just as restless as chasing after idols. They argue, your God makes you do all these things to earn his approval. He gives you these, these commands, these, these rules and regulations. That, that doesn't sound like rest to me. Have you ever had that thought? And it's true that some Christians, unfortunately many Christians, are restless. They see the commands of the Bible and they live restless lives thinking that their relationship with God hinges somehow upon how well they perform them. Christian, you ever feel this way? That your relationship with God is based upon how well you do his commands each day? If you, take, if you, have, a, if you have a good day, God is happy. If you have a bad day, well, you'll just have to redouble your efforts tomorrow. Christian, you've ever felt that way? This text instructs us that this isn't the way to be for those who have been redeemed by God's grace. This text actually shows us that we are to experience a rest from God. How so? Look at verse 3. What does God say? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a command, right? Pretty clear. Um, We call commands in Scripture, we call them imperatives. Imperatives tell us what to do. What are we to do here? God says we are to have no other gods before him. Now, the big question we need to ask is why? If you're a parent of teenagers, uh, you reach that point where they begin asking why all the time, you know, because dad says so, doesn't work anymore, right? So um, there is the imperative, but we always need to know the answer why. Some would answer that we're to have no other gods before him because if we do that, well, then God will accept you. That's kind of what people think Christianity is about. But that's nowhere in the text. Here's an amazing truth that will transform how you read your Bible and how you relate to God. See, not only does the Bible have a bunch of imperatives, it also has what we call indicatives. Indicatives are truth statements. They are the what is true about you and your relationship with God. What if I were to say right now, run for your lives? All right, none of you moved. Seriously, nobody moved. That's an imperative. It's a command. Run for your lives. We want to know the whys. We want, we, 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 um, we want to know the indicatives. What if I were to tell you, Rawr. there's a bear behind there. He's angry grizzly bear. Run for your lives. 
All right, still not working because you know there's no bear back there. But we want to know the why. The indicatives give us the motivation for doing the imperatives. And here's what you need to understand, Christian. The Bible is full of imperatives, but it's also in full of uh, indicatives. The what are true statements. And the reasons why we do anything as a Christian isn't to earn God's favor. The indicatives are always full of grace and mercy and what God has done for us. Therefore, it's out of these truths about what God has done for us that we are to love and obey and serve him. So now, what is the indicative in our passage? Look at verse 2. What is the indicative? You better or else. Uh, All good Christians do this, so you should have no other gods before me. No. What is the grace-filled truth statement that is true for, for, for these people? What does it say? I am Yahweh, your God. He said, I've already redeemed you. I've already lavished my grace upon you. I've already promised to care for and to protect and to provide for you no matter what. I'm Yahweh, your God. Now, in light of this, live before me with no other gods. Do you see the difference there? Grace comes before law. And Christian, you must remember, it is always grace that motivates us to fulfill any of God's commands. If you're doing it out of some slavish duty, then you're not at rest and you don't understand God's grace in that moment. Does that make sense? So to the Christian who wakes up every morning and climbs on the treadmill of good works, know this, you are saved by grace and you live by grace. Your religious performance cannot add to or take away from your status as dearly loved child of God. Your relationship with God was purely a work of his redeeming grace. So a couple quick points of application. This should change how we read our Bibles, right? Especially when you read Paul, right? Paul has a lot of what to do's, right? Our natural tendency as Christians is to hone in on the imperatives. All right, what is this telling me to do today? I got to get to work soon. What am I supposed to do as a good Christian? I want you to stop when that happens and look around the text. Somewhere, either implied or clearly stated, there is a what is true, a beautiful, grace-filled, merciful statement that is to be your motivation for living out that command. Take, for instance, we just did a series on Romans. Romans 12, there's a command in Romans 12. Paul says, present, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That sounds pretty hard. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like a big command. Sounds like, I really, I don't, I'm not so sure I want to do it. Can I do it like five days out of seven? Is that okay? Um, you know, but there, that's the imperative. It's a big what to do. But if you notice before that, Paul summarizes the first 11 chapters in which God's love and mercy has been shown to his people. Here is how that statement comes. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Look at how merciful God's been to you. Look at his compassion and his grace. Look at the great cost of what he's done by sending his son to live and to to die in your place. Look at that, and by that mercy towards you, be motivated to respond with service to him. That makes sense, right? 
We can do that seven days a week, or at least try to, right? All right, that's the first point. Um, we need to read our Bibles differently. The second point comes from asking the question, what was it that God gave his people at the same time as he gave the Ten Commandments and the other commands in, in Exodus? What was it that God gave his people? That When he gave them the law, he gave them what? The tabernacle. The law and the tabernacle were the means by which God would have a relationship with his people. He's already redeemed them, brought them to himself, and he says, this is what my people will look like. And guess what? When you fail, you have the tabernacle. When you sin, even if you don't mean to, that's the means by which I can forgive you through this tabernacle. Think about that, my friends. What kind of God would in the, when call you to himself, know that you're already like a schmuck who's going to fail multiple times, right? He knows this about us. He knows that even on the good days, we're not going to, often not going to listen to him. And yet, and so he gives us his law and he gives us the means by which our relationship can be maintained forever. He gives us the tabernacle. No idol will ever do that for you. No idol will ever say, serve me, no idol, uh, and come near to me. No idol would say, come near to me, and if you let me down, that's okay. No, our idols are ruthless demanders. They're, they're, they, they, there's, there's no room for error in the idols that we serve. But God comes, calls us to himself, and, and he, 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 he redeems us by his grace, and he says, this is how you shall live, and when you fail, I will forgive you. Now, the forgiveness is costly. Back in the first exodus, it, it cost sheep and lambs and, and doves and grain. And it went on and on and on. Every day there was animals being sacrificed. Why? Because every day the people of God needed um, to experience um, atonement that came to the tabernacle. My friends, that, that first exodus really points us where? To a second, more excellent the excellent exodus that comes to us through Jesus Christ. In that first exodus, uh, uh, a regular man full of sinful habits went and interceded and redeemed God's people back. But in the second exodus, God sent his very own son, perfect in holiness, in righteousness. And, And God said, you're going to intercede on behalf of my people. You're going to be the one who redeems them. And it's true, Jesus reaffirmed the law, right? The Sermon on the Mount. The law's not going away, but guess what? I'm going to fulfill it for you, and I'm going to be the sacrifice for you when you fall short. And so what we see as, as we look now back at the Exodus, we cannot help but look through the eyes of the cross, through the eyes of the new Exodus in Jesus Christ. And we cannot help but come to the conclusion that in Christ Jesus, the redeeming grace of God freely calls us to Yahweh, to experience the God who will always be there for his people, to experience the ongoing mercy and forgiveness that Christ brings, and to experience the rest that only Christ can give you. Do you remember what, remember what Jesus said? He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's like, trust me on this one. Uh, when you come to me and trust in me, I will really, really, really set you free. And, and, and he will give you rest. 
Jesus said with, with great sincerity and longing for us to follow through to all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Have you experienced God's redeeming grace in Christ Jesus? Have you experienced the release? Yes, from your sins and from your idols. Have you experienced the rest that he alone can give you? Christians, we do not, our relationship with God is not based upon how we perform today, but on how well Christ has performed for us. We rest secured in that. Christ has freed us. and We're free indeed. Okay, we've seen the release. We've seen the rest. Now for the renewal. It'll go pretty quick here. We are to have no other gods than Yahweh because only he can give us renewal. You know, some people will argue, is it not true, that, yeah, God might be releasing you from gods, but then isn't he just kind of re-enslaving you, right? You know, this is actually false. God gave us his law not to bring us into a new form of slavery, but rather so that we would know how to live out our new freedom and flourish. Imagine this. Imagine, seriously, it's hard to do. Imagine, you might have to close your eyes. Uh, imagine, like I am. All right. Uh, imagine that everybody on earth, everybody loves God sees his goodness and his nature and his character and lives to honor God, that, that everyone um, reflects God's character here on earth, that every single person you ever encounter is kind and patient and loving and accepting and giving. Everyone lived as God intended man to live. Everyone Except you. Wouldn't you be thinking, um, I don't fit in here. I think maybe I might need to be the one who changes. Give me some laws to live by so that I can really live like I know I should be. Understand this. God originally originally made mankind to be reflectors of God's moral beauty. And so we are most human when we image God's goodness and moral character. The problem isn't God or his moral character. The problem is that mankind has fallen. Our natures are corrupt. And even on the days that we want to do what's right, we often fall short, do we not? We have been made to reflect the goodness of God. And now in Christ, we have been freed, freed to flourish in our new identities. My friends, God gave us his law so that we would flourish in our newfound freedom. One of the greatest baseball managers of all times, and not just because he managed the St. Louis Cardinals back in the wonderful era of the 1980s, uh, is Whitey, Whitey Herzog. Maybe some of you guys remember Whitey Herzog. Whitey Herzog had only two rules if you were on his baseball team. He said, do these and all will go well. 
show up on time, and give me 100%. Do these, and all will go well. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he says this so that if we do this, all will go well. The commands of God are not to hinder our freedom, but to help us to get the most out of our freedom that God has given us. There was only one law in the Garden of Eden. When God said to Adam, do not eat of that one tree, he was not limiting Adam's freedom. He was protecting it. You see the difference? Tomorrow we celebrate our nation's independence. One of the founding fathers, uh, all of the founding fathers knew, knew and understood this, that freedom and virtue are inseparable. Benjamin Franklin, one of the signers of the Declaration, wrote this. He said this. He said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Franklin is saying that that if a nation has freedom but lacks virtue, it will fall into corruption. It will need leaders to take charge and to throw upon them a bunch of rules to follow so they can all get along together. Freedom and virtue are inseparable. So when God says you're to have no other gods before me, it's for our good. And when our lives are lived with God as our highest good, then our lives experience the goodness that only God can give us. To live for self and for one's own gain and glory is not just morally wrong, it's existentially wrong. Like fish who are made to live in water, so mankind was made to live in God's world with a moral purity. So understand this. God in giving his law to his grace-redeemed people wasn't re-enslaving them. No, the law too was a gift of God's grace. On the one hand, it points to our need for Christ. Gosh, I can't do this. I, I do a really bad job of honoring my mother and father. Uh, you know, and I, gosh, I covet. Oh, I just did it again, right? I mean, so it points to our need for a savior, for a redeemer. But then after receiving God's redeeming grace, it no longer condemns us, but it's a light to our path. It shows us how to use our freedom and to become the ones for whom God has made us to be. When you read the commands of Scripture, do you see them as good for you? Do you see that they don't take away your freedom, but how they actually help you to flourish in your freedom? All right, this short tweet has taught us a number of things this morning, right? God has a name. His name is Yahweh. God's name says, I am the faithful God for my people. And, and Yahweh calls us, he calls us by his redeeming grace. He releases us from our bondage to false idols. He makes us rest in his presence. And he renews us by his grace-filled commands so that we may flourish in our new freedom. Where will we go with the freedom we have 
in Christ. There's a story that's been told uh, about the during the Civil War days, before the American slaves were freed, about a northerner who, who traveled south and went to a slave auction, and he purchased a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and he said, you're free. With amazement, she responded, I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes. And to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And go wherever I want to go? Yes, he said with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, then I will go with you. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Now, where will you go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call upon you, and not just God, but we can call you Yahweh, the name you've revealed to us. We thank you that you are faithful to your people, even when we're not faithful to you, that you have redeemed us in your grace that you've released us from bondage, that you've put us at rest in Christ, and that you're renewing us uh, in the image of God. We thank you for that. May we walk out of here different. May we walk out of here um, understanding imperatives and indicatives. May we uh, know that we're at peace with you. Uh, and may we know that this comes to us not by what we've done, but what Christ has done for us. We pray. Amen.